Well, if you missed it last week, uh, Jesus preached the shortest sermon ever given, nine words in our translation, and it was just so good that we're repeating it this week. Here it is. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. End of sermon. I thought, well, I guess the Son of God gets away with things like that. Um, But it doesn't actually end up being the greatest day at the office for Jesus, who, as we just read, uh, nearly gets thrown off of a cliff following that sermon. Never had that happen, so, you know, still doing all right. So to recap where we were last week, he, heard, he read from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and this is what he read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He was prophecy fulfilled. And the people sat, electrified, waiting. The reports had spread about what he had done, the power and grace spreading so visibly. Could he be the one? A hometown hero, you know? Joseph's boy. The candidate stumping in his home state. I mean, of course, he was there for them, for Israel, because they were the oppressed in Roman society. They were the captives whose exile had never healed. They were the poor, hungering for good news. Joseph's boy would bring honor to them all. And then he turned and told them a story. So there was a three-year famine in Israel when Elijah, the greatest prophet Israel ever knew, was around. The drought weakened even the strongest, hardiest folk of Israel. The widows of the land were numerous, the orphans too. Everyone became poor and starving. But Elijah, the great prophet, came to the house of a foreign widow in a foreign town, Sidon, and performed great miracles there. The widow met him and explained she was running out of food. She had just enough flour and oil to make one more cake for her and her young son. Then they would eat it and die. That's what she said. Elijah asked for room and board in exchange for a miracle, that the flour jar would never run empty, the oil flask would never run dry. God closed the heavens, Jesus says, and then God's omnipotent power was known to a single woman, a non-believer. Jesus' coming is like that, he says. He tells another story in case the point wasn't clear about the particularity of God's action Elisha was the successor of Elijah, as you know. He was given a double portion of Elijah's spirit when his master was taken up into the heavens by chariots of fire. Now, Syria was about as well-loved then as it is now, the powerful and dangerous neighbors of Israel, and there was no security fence. The commander of the Syrian army is a guy named Naaman. He contracts leprosy. But he hears about Elisha and sends for him with appropriate gifts. Elisha refuses to come. He's sort of a cantankerous character from what we can tell. 
But he says to go tell Naaman to wash himself in the Jordan seven times. You know the story. Naaman is furious, right? And then concedes, and he does it, and he's healed. Of all the lepers in Israel in the time of the great Elisha, God came and healed one, a foreigner, the enemy. In another time and place, Jesus might have told another story. There's a Zen story of two monks who were traveling along until they came to a river, and a woman was stranded on their side and could not swim, could not get across. One monk put her on his back and struggled through the current to get to the other side. And then, once they made it, they parted ways as soon as they'd crossed. The two monks traveled on. The one who had not touched the woman was biting the inside of his cheek with anger until miles later he couldn't contain himself any longer and he burst out, How could you? We took vows to never touch a woman. The other turned to him and said, Yes, and I set her down and left her on the side of the river. How are you still carrying her? Maybe today Jesus might have told a different story, like maybe one like the play, uh, The Christians. I don't know if you've heard of it. It was on Broadway a few years back. But it's the story of an evangelical megachurch pastor who gets up one Sunday morning with conviction and fear and trembling and announces that it will no longer be church policy to believe in hell. No more hell, he says. The members argue against him with scripture, which the pastor can answer easily enough. The original references to hell were a reference to the city dump, after all, Gehenna. But then it becomes more clear that it's not scripture that's the problem here. It's that the people cannot handle the change of the old ways, the old doctrine that they knew, the way things worked. One by one, the pastor loses his parishioners his assistants, his choir. Maybe you would have told a story like that. All of these stories ask the question, to whom does God arrive? The stories beg the question to us, what does it look like to redraw the boundaries of God's kingdom? I think it can look two ways. The raging, sort of retributive reaction that cares only for self and profit and rules and the way things ought to be done, obsessively considering who has wronged me, fixating on who is my enemy. Or if you're ready, it can look something like a mute move of humility, the forsaking of my own control, the reformation of my mind into the mind of Christ. It can look something like what we read maybe from 1 Corinthians today, the 13th chapter. We hear this all the time in marriage ceremonies, but it's not really about romantic love. It's written to a group of folks who consider themselves spiritual athletes, like the Olympians of the Christian life. They desire the gifts of God for their own glorification and stardom in the world. 
Paul, instead of telling stories that could get him thrown off of a cliff, writes them a poem instead. Love is the greatest thing you can aim for, he says, and it does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing. It rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends, he says. Love is the only thing that lasts. We are given the chance to become creatures who last.